welcome to Talking Early Years. And today I am having a undoubtedly lively conversation with Trisha Lee, who is the artistic director of Make Believe Arts. And I'm I think we go back some years, Trisha. Tammy, can you remember when we first met? I I don't know, it's quite a long time ago. I mean I was it early? I, I, don't, I have no idea. I really can't remember. I know we go back a long way, though. I wonder was when we were going back, when it was about multi-generational and we were talking with uh, a number of artistic organisations about how you bring, uh, you build a bridge of multi-generational between uh, art organisations and the early years. And we had a meeting somewhere in London and um, Sid, I think Sid, Sid, uh, Thornbury from at the time the conservatoire was a, was there. Do you remember all of yes, that? Yes, yes, I do. I do. Yeah, no, and I remember Sid. I haven't talked to Sid for years, but I do remember her very well. But yes, gosh, that and was that the Arts Council? Yes, yeah, it was. It was. It was. Yeah. So tell us since then, which is probably, you know, I hate to say this, but it's probably 10 years ago. Since then, tell us the story of Make Believe Arts and, and how you've developed and where you're at now. Well, Make Believe Arts, we started in 2002 and um, as a theatre and education company. And um, since then, initially, our focus was helicopter stories was always one part of our work. But we also did creative approaches to mathematics. We did a lot of work with science. We did a lot of intergenerational work. We looked at a whole range of different areas that we covered. Um, and then over the last few years, since 2015, we have gradually stripped everything away and made our focus completely within the early years and around helicopter stories and what we call the storytelling curriculum, which is based on the work of Vivian Gussin Paley and the storytelling curriculum that she had within her classroom. So we've kind of shrunk, whereas a lot of organisations grow bigger, we were growing bigger and we've really focused on becoming much more strategic and targeted in what we were doing. And that grew out of the love that we develop for helicopter stories and how important that work feels and how important it felt to be focused um, within the early years. So the age group we work with now is two to six year olds. Um, and that's, you know, that's a key part. So that's been quite a big change for us over the last five years. And, and um, who is part of your team now? How, how does your team look like now? So there's only three of us now. So um, there's myself, um, there's Isla Hill, who um, is the education director who I've worked with since we started. So she's been with us all along. And then Bill Moody, who's the administrator. So it literally is a very small team of three of us um, with me and Isla being the key people who do the delivery. Well, I mean, I was very interested in in uh, what, and I've always watched your work actually because um, because of the helicopter. Um, I fell in love with Vivian Gustin Paley when I first read "You Can't Say You Can't Play," and um, I I hadn't thought about helicopter stories or anything like that, but I loved the fact that she understood the philosophical debates that go on in a nursery between your average three and four year olds. 
And so the way she had used that story to tell a story to everyone else about how children need to find a way to get to the rules of the game. Because at the time, and I think still, there is a lot of this golden, golden rules and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I often wonder about whose golden rules they are. Um, and from that, I got really interested in her work and discovered Helicopter Time. Um, and then we... I, again, I'm very bad on dates, but she was invited to a conference in Brent and I was able to go there with quite a few of my staff. And we were very excited to to meet this very unassuming woman, but who had a great tale to tell. So tell us your journey with Gus and Paley and, and how how, you know, you got involved in terms of which was the book that, you know, you think sort of almost sums her up and, you know, and, and if it was on your desert island disc, which of the Gus and Paley books would you take with you? <laughs> well, the, my my way of meeting her, somebody handed me, and this was in 1999, somebody handed me a copy of um, The Boy Who Would Be a Helicopter, one mm -hmm. of her books, and said, oh, you might like that. You do this theatre stuff. And they didn't realise that at the time they were they were handing me the thing that would change my life. So I suppose on my Desert Island book disc, <laughs> that book would have to be there because it is the book that changed my life. Um, and then I I think my relationship and my friendship, Vivian, and um, you know, was our patron at Make Believe Arts from the start of when you know when when we started, and also she's been my dear friend, and. I really put my relationship with her down to the fact that I work in theatre, not education. And in theatre, there's a really big push that what we don't do is we don't just borrow things, we get permission. Copyright is huge within theatre, whereas in education, we're brilliant at borrowing things, aren't we? And Magpie, go, I'll take a bit of that and I'll use that and I'll blend it together. So because we wanted to develop her work, we had to get in touch with her. And so I contacted the Chicago Laboratory School where she was working and asked her, well, I, I asked if I could have her contact details. And it was 1999 and someone gave them to me. And even at the time I was going, I'm sure I shouldn't get these. <laughs> and I wrote to her and she was coming to London to do some work. And she was also with her husband on holiday about two weeks after my letter. So we came and we met up. And that's been key is that, I mean, I've since that time, I've met with her so many times. She was in Ireland, that time in Brent you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. I was there um, and I actually got to do a workshop at that same conference um, alongside her. And I remember Vivian came and watched me delivering a workshop on her approach, which has to be the scariest thing I have yeah. ever had to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I've been really lucky and we wrote to each other for 20 years. So Vivian died um, in July uh, 2019. So, you know, sort yeah. of a few years ago now coming up. But at, during the 20 years that I knew her, we she was my friend. I stayed in her house. I worked at um, the Chicago Laboratory School. She invited me there and I got to work with some of the children. And I think the biggest thing for me in terms of Vivian is the way that she was so open and would so listen to all children and would really prioritise them. 
I was writing um, something recently about Vivian and I was talking to my son about it, who's 28, and he remembers because he came over, um, we were in Texas doing some work and Vivian was there. And there was a whole group of people. It was a conference and it was after the conference. Um, and my son was only sort of 11 at the time. And he remembers that he said something about what had happened with a group of children and everyone carried on talking and nobody listened. And Vivian stopped a whole conversation of adults and said, sorry, I think Callum said something and listened to him. And he's like 28 now and he still remembers that. Mm. And I think that really sums up that she listened and she made everyone feel valued. And, you know, for Vivian, it was about bringing in the outsider. And I know for me, as the child who spent a lot of time outside the classroom, I was in so much trouble at school and I didn't fit in and I wasn't allowed, you know, sort of I got told off for talking too much, for fidgeting. And basically I should have been doing drama and storytelling and then I'd have been perfectly focused. And for me, seeing Vivian working with children was the first time that I found a connection and went, this is where I fit and this is a way that I can fit in education, which is why um, I've made it my life's mission to to share her work and kind of get as many people doing it as possible. And we have been using helicopter, I, I've forgotten how long now, but very long time. Certainly um, we were using it when we went to see her in Brent because we were interested to see what her take would be on it. But um, for me, helicopter is is I think it's an essential uh, part of of any any delivery of any pedagogical perspective or uh, of any curriculum, because it gives children a voice. And uh, at Leaf, we work with children from a disadvantaged background, and they don't often have a voice. So for me, that's a helicopter is a good way of of doing it. But talk to me about how other people are using helicopter and how it's kind of, in a way, uh, developed and you know, what your experience of it is in nurseries uh, in the UK, particularly? Well, maybe even more specifically in England. So within within England, we've been really pushing for it to happen. And so I know that it's happening more now than it ever has been. It's interesting with the name Helicopter Stories, because that's what we called it, not what Vivian called it. So whenever that Helicopter Stories is named, I know that it links back to the work that we were doing. Vivian called it storytelling and story acting. Um, and we accidentally named it from that book. But through, there's a lot of local authorities that are really working on embedding it throughout the local authority. And I think it's in essence, Helicopter Stories is a very simple approach. Oh, a child great. tells you their story, you write it down, and then you all come together and you act it out. And I think the complexity of it is to do with the child-centeredness and changing your perspective so that you're not leading, you're not trying to get the child to act in the way you want them to act. You're not trying to... Um, to prompt them for their story you're writing it verbatim you're getting the story to be exactly as you you know as the child is telling it so you're really valuing their voice and their unique way of speaking and i think that's been the thing that we've seen um working around the country is actually that people are 
beginning to really take that on and enjoy it. And where Helicopter Stories is working, you see such massive improvements in children's speaking and listening, in their the way that they communicate with each other, how they feel part of a group. And we've been working on a longitudinal study over the last three years, which yeah. came to a crashing end in March 2020. Yes, that March deadline. I haven't been with children since then. So oh, wow. um, hopefully September I'll be back in schools working with children again. But we were working with children from preschool and right the way through to year two. So tracking children from two to seven and actually looking at how the development of their stories was, what happened in terms of them working as a group and tracking different groups of children and also looking the preschool that we were working with was um, a feeder to the primary school. So we've taken children across there. And it's actually what my next book that I'm working on at the moment will be all about is actually looking at um, this growth of the storyteller and what happens when children are doing it consistently from the age of two right the way up to the age of six or seven um, within primary school. And what we're finding is that it's it's not just about their storytelling developing. Obviously, that's one side of it. But also what's happening is that the way they function as a group and Vivian talked about that you develop a community of storytellers and they borrow images from each other. And, you know, all of this wonderful richness happens, but also in terms of personal, social and emotional development, the children care about each other. There's, you know, nothing better that you can do than listening to each other's stories to make you feel empathy for each other, to make you care, to make you um, feel in a place where you're secure and you're safe. And that's something. And we've watched the writing develop in children because not because we ask them to write, but because they choose to. That actually, if it's not your turn to tell a story, then you pick up a pen and you write your own story, whether that's with emergent writing or, you know, that you're beginning to write words or, you know, eventually with our year, year ones and year twos going on to sentences. And I would make sure that all those stories got acted out as well. So we've been able to really see a development because we've needed to track the long term because there hasn't been anything that's going, we need to keep doing that. And I think that's my big push is that, you know, this isn't something you do once as a one off. The benefits come from doing it on a regular basis. I would agree with that, actually, because. It took us a while. We call it um, helicopter time. We've always called it helicopter time. And um, it's about how do you get it regularly in, 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 in the setting? And uh, we have a great advocate of it, um, Stacey Jane Whitfield. She was at the time, uh, she was the nursery teacher, a leaf teacher at uh, the Barracks Nursery in Hyde Park Barracks. That, take, that, that takes us right back. And she fell in love with the whole idea of the children being given a voice. And we kind of created our own system around it. But it's it's quite interesting about how it has to be bedded into your your sort of weekly, you know, uh, routine. And, and it, it, it doesn't matter if it gets slightly wrong, because what we tend to do is the children all adds to the story so that the quiet children have a voice as well. 
And then the staff generally write it down, although sometimes the children write their own version as well and then they act it out. But yeah, but it's uh, I'm just interested to see, to hear your thoughts about the importance of it being bedded in as part of a way of doing things. So how do you think? With your passion and your knowledge and your experience across the piece from two to six and seven, um, how do you think the 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 power of of helicopter stories or helicopter time or just storytelling generally can really challenge some of the kind of wider policy narratives that we're having to negotiate at the moment around uh, phonics and schoolification and. Um, uh, it feels a much more formulaic and perhaps on lack of creativity in that approach. Yeah. No, I mean, I it, it horrifies me the schoolification um, that that you're talking about. I feel that what we are doing is we are shutting many children out of education and. One of the things, you know, that we need to be doing is we need to be developing a love of learning. And that doesn't come from schoolification. That doesn't come from baseline testing. It doesn't come from constantly feeling like you have to do things in this way. And it also doesn't fit with where we are. I mean, you know, in the 21st century, in terms of, you know, what do employers look for in their few, you know, people they're employing, they look for creativity. Creativity mm. is in the top 10 things that employers want. And we are schooling our children out of being creative. And we're doing it through introducing, I mean, you know, the teaching of how we teach grammar is ridiculous in, you know, in the way that I see it. Um, we teach the two together. We teach this sort of, and in a ridiculous way where we have to label what we're writing about in a way that a writer wouldn't know. Writers don't know what each word is, no. but actually we're expecting our children to. And likewise, because of that, we expect our teachers to learn this stuff, to teach children that nobody actually needs. Um, and what we're not doing is we're not supporting the development of creativity. And actually, when I look at the three and four and five year olds that I work with, they are hugely creative. We are creative individuals. We come into this world creative. Our brains are hardwired to make sense of the world via story. That is the tool that we use. And you can see that in the way children play with language, the way if you support them through helicopter stories and you allow every child to have a voice and they feel confident that they're not going to be criticised or corrected as they tell that story, then what you do is you help that to grow and you also help them to borrow their images from other people in the classroom, other children. And I think what we're doing by testing, by going, this is the only way. I mean, also, you know, the other thing that really annoys we we end up teaching adverbs and, you know, and then you just end up with this really awful writing that's far too flowery and that it's easy to tick. Oh, they've done four adverbs. So I can tick that. I can go that. And it's not about creativity isn't that. So what happens is then people go on to write as they grow older, children start writing and they might write things that get ticked, but they're never going to write things that are listened to because it's actually too weighted with adverbs, with adjectives, with flowery language. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, I hate 
the way that schooling is going and it scares me but it's also it's the reason why I failed at school and I failed because I was sent outside the classroom because I couldn't cope with that way of being schooled and I think that's what's happening to so many children and there'll be certain children who will thrive on it who will like that linear way of learning and actually they need the creativity because actually they need to open up mm. in a different way but there mm. will also be a vast majority of children who won't succeed in that environment and then you have covid and children who have been isolated throughout this period of time to that and you just think how can they cope what they need to be doing is learning to work in a group again and caring about each other and nurturing and developing emotional intelligence and for me it's not just about helicopter stories it's about children need to be hearing more stories they yeah. need to be hearing more poetry that is going out of um our society we're not sharing as many stories and when schools and settings feel pressured to go alongside and be more schooled in the way that they work that's the thing that gets pushed aside and yet when children listen to stories they're developing their emotional intelligence they're beginning to put themselves into other characters viewpoints they're learning all of those things that we're trying to teach like beginnings and ends of stories they'll learn them through hearing stories in Vivian Gussin Paley's classroom she read her four and five-year-old stories like Charlotte's Web yeah the tinderbox you know these beautiful stories and you kind of got, I mean I don't know many people who read Charlotte's Web to young children in that way but children can cope with stories beyond their years and need to be hearing language beyond their years. Absolutely. Um, it's very joyful to hear you talking about this, actually. And I'm just thinking um, about how much time you have or how much of your proportion of your work is about supporting staff to become storytellers themselves. Because if you look at the marketing world, if you look at the corporate world, it is all about storytelling. Every advert, every TikTok, every this, that and the other, it tells a story. It mightn't say this is the beginning, this is the middle and this is the end, but it actually does tell a story. And the school, the education department seems to be back in, it's really gone backwards in terms of that and fails to recognise that the rest of the world is making its money by actually telling stories and convincing people to do stuff. So how much of your time is supporting staff to become confident storytellers both in terms of the way they read the book so you don't have that awful dull children children oh sit down sit down you know spend the whole time going night time night time bring your legs in bring your legs in you know all that sort of stuff and where the children just really suicidal at the end but uh, because what struck me and what we've discovered from some of the work we've been doing uh, about reading and storytelling is actually nobody gets taught how to read a story as part of their training. It, there's a kind of assumption that because you're in early years, you automatically can tell a good story. Boy, that is not the case, is it? No, 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 definitely. No, unfortunately, it's not part of our work, although I'm listening to you going, yeah, maybe we should do some storytelling training. What we've done recently, though, is we've created 
Because of COVID, we had to put a lot of our work online. And one of the things that I've been passionate about, and it comes from the same place as you're talking, is getting children to hear lots of stories. So I've been working with a musician and we've created the Story Basket. And the Story Basket is 15 audio only stories because for children aged um, three to six. And there's stories like The Ugly Duckling, The right. Twelve Dancing Princesses, um, and they're on our website and it's a subscription, um, £30 for a year to have it for your school or setting. So it's, you know, we try to do it really affordably, but they are beautiful because the musician has worked alongside me to ensure that there's sound effects, there's really rich, vibrant music. And it all comes from that place of going, how can we get children to be hearing really high quality mm. stories in this way and experiencing those stories? The 12 dancing princesses, I rewrote the end. <laughs> I couldn't bear that, oh, and then you choose which of the 12 you're going to marry. That's like not gonna happen in a story I have. But they all went off dancing together, it's fine. Um, but actually, you know, these stories are beautiful. The idea of these girls sneaking out you know, going in swan-shaped boats across the water to dance every night and nobody knowing where they've gone. I mean, these are magical stories. And I think the more we can share those sorts of stories with our children, the richer their language, their, all of those things will be. But it's interesting, when we do our helicopter stories training and when we do that face-to-face, -face, we talk a lot about how we work with children and you know sort of what is it that we're doing we always demonstrate with children and when that's happening we're always asking what is it we're doing and a lot of that is intonation a lot of that is pausing and listening and hearing what the child's saying and reading a child I mean for me it's whether whether I'm reading a story or orally telling a story mm. or whether I'm reading a story a child's told me, each of them has to be given that weight and that magic exactly the same. So when I read a child's story, I will, I will layer that with the same level of, wow, this is amazing. Even if it's just one word, princess, wow. And then we're there and we see the rest of the story. But it's interesting, we don't at the moment offer training teachers how to be storytellers, but I'm, I'm noting it in my brain. <laughs> I think you probably um, do well if you did, because they're not taught about that at all. And to me, and therefore you have lack of confidence about the kind of stories you will tell. Or as the children always say to me, if I, one of my favourites is the hairy toe. I love to tell them the story of the hairy toe without a book. And then you change the words going along and you say, once upon a time, there was a nursery in Marsham Street in London. And they're all going, isn't that Arnhem Street? <laughs> you know, and then you sort of say, and two children arrive late. And and then you say, and, you know, Savannah was very late this morning. Savannah's like, oh, my God, is that me? And they're all looking. Like, is that? So you then, have, of course, have to think of every one of them have got to have a part in it as you're telling the story. But just to have more people who were brave enough to do that, I think, is really proper. It's really important. And um, I think it's also genuinely great fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's it's interesting because it's improvisation, which is yeah. one of my favourite theatre occupations. It's like, you know, but it is, it's about making things up. And children are fantastic improvisers. That's yeah, what fantasy play not. is. And, you know, as adults, you're right, we do need to kind of meet them and come, okay, okay, what's happening here? And be able to improvise in that way with them. So, yeah, definitely. I think it would enrich helicopter time because it gives staff the confidence, you know, you know, when you're going around the room and you start the story with once upon a time and then a child says something. Well, I do a lot of that with the staff and I go right now, imagine you're three. So, you know, how does that feel? And it takes them a while to get into the headspace of a three year old and feel free enough to be able to say there was a dragon. And instead of going, there was a dragon who had to go shopping, you know, and you're already in their kind of grown up space. There was a dragon who had a niche in his ear, you know, that sort of thing. And it, it just kind of makes it just more fun. So I would I would be delighted if you did some more training on that front. And then well, finally, the, other, the other thing with that is that what what we what, where the story basket came from was because we were doing that and it's exactly what you're saying it's that thing of we need to fill the story diet of children and i think that's what vivian was doing vivian wasn't just doing storytelling and story acting she was filling a story diet for her children and they would act out stories that were from books or they'd act out stories she'd make up they'd act out nursery rhymes they'd act out poems and that's why, for us, why we've been creating the Poetry Basket is another thing that we created, which is poems for teachers to learn so they can teach with actions, so they can teach them to their children. Because it's making sure that we've got that amount of stuff in our repertoire when we're yeah. working with children, isn't it? It's like, going, we need stories, we need these things. And it's so easy when you start focusing on grammar and phonics to go, oh, I haven't got time for that and to forget those things. And, you know, that being where your brain goes rather than what stories have I learned. In Erickson um, University in Chicago, the teachers, the trainee teachers there for early years have to learn 40 poems or rhymes as part of their training. I'm just Which writing think... this down. So clever, this. And I'm also going to add to our interview process. We always get them to do um, to, 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 to tell a story. But I'm also going to ask the question, what is your favourite story, too? Yeah. So already, thank you. You've already um, said two, two things that the rest of the staff are going, oh, my. Every time she goes off, she goes back with something. But that's learn 40. I might not push the 40, but at least go 10. 10 proper ones with the Makaton signs as well. Yeah. Well, that's it with the poetry baskets, 36. So it's 12 per term. And the oh. idea of that, and some of them are seasonal and, you know, they're all sort of sourced from anonymous authors. And, but, but it's about the actions. It's about, you know, and what I'm getting feedback on is that children are learning the poems with the actions and being able to go around their setting and recite them and, you know, sort of that it becomes part of what what they're doing, how they're doing. And that's how we enrich language. That's just brilliant. So that's definitely my call to action. And I should be doing something about that this week. Um, so anyone listening from Leaf, be warned, I'm on my way. But what would your call to action be, Tricia, for, for the sector? 
Uh, my first thing would be I'd be stopping the baseline. That would be the thing that I do. And that's not something in my power, obviously. But I just I think, you know, taking children out the moment uh, they arrive is not right. And in its place, I would be my call would definitely be telling stories and poetry and sharing that with children alongside helicopter stories. I really do think that every child in the early years deserves to have their story listened to, written down word for word, and then acted out. And I think if we give that to children, and I saw Vivian just before she died, and I promised her that I would make sure that we keep, I will push for this to happen as much as possible. And that's my, you know, and I hold that, I want this to happen. Vivian Gustin Paley's name mustn't be forgotten, and we must keep telling taking stories from children. And that's something that is so important to me. So yes, that's my call to action. Listen to your children, write their words exactly, then act them out. We have to act out those stories. It's vital because that's why children, that makes the leap for them from the spoken to the written, to the acted out, to actually completing the whole circle. So they see how the effect of that well, this is very, this is such a lovely conversation. I'm so glad we've managed to get this in the diary. Thank you so, so very much. Um, I have written so many notes, but it's great to find someone else who loves the work of Vivian Gustin Paley. And certainly at Leaf, she'll never be forgotten. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. If you like what you heard, please share it or check us out on our website, leaf.org.uk.